Hello. We're going to be reading firstly from Exodus, which is on page, chapter 20, is on page 73 of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labour and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your manservant or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his manservant or maidservant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbour. The second reading is from Mark chapter 10 on page 1001. Jesus then left that place and went into the region of Judea and across the Jordan. Again, crowds of people came to him, and as was his custom, he taught them. Some Pharisees came and tested him by asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? What did Moses command you, he replied. They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. It was because your hearts were hard that Moses wrote you this law, Jesus replied. But at the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. When they were in the house, again, the disciples asked Jesus about this. He answered, Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another man, she commits adultery. People were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms, 
put his hands on them and blessed them. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honour your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Peter said to him, We have left everything to follow you. I tell you the truth, Jesus replied. No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields and with them persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Sorry, taking the long way around. Um, If you're new or visiting tonight, you may be wondering what you've got yourself into with that passage. Um, We're halfway through a long series going right through Mark's Gospel. Uh, And that's the bit we're up to, so sorry that you have to join in at this point. Uh, Well, not really sorry, actually. Uh, Let me pray as we come to God's Word. Father, we, uh, we do ask for your help this evening. Uh, As we look at this passage and we meet your son Jesus again in it, we ask that you would show him to us. And we ask that you help us to think carefully and well about some really difficult areas and about how how you might be speaking to us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. It used to be the case that when people... When you ask people what they thought of Jesus, a whole bunch of people would say something like, oh, he's a great moral teacher. Uh, I don't think this happens very much anymore because, well, partly because, as we'll see, what he taught is no longer actually considered by many people to be great teaching. It's almost the opposite. Um, But also because people increasingly just don't know much about Jesus at all. As we've been journeying through Mark's Gospel over the past months, though, I wonder if you've noticed actually how little moral teaching there's been. We've had nine chapters and we've hardly had any of it. We had a little bit last week and we had some parables and we had some stuff about religious hypocrisy, but you know, not a lot of moral teaching. But now in chapter 10, Mark kind of makes up for this. Uh, he gives us a window onto what Jesus was like as an ethical teacher, what kinds of things he said. Um, He shows us Jesus talking about, to put it bluntly, sex, 
money and power. Uh, And his teaching that is actually confronting, as difficult to hear and radically countercultural. But if we want to understand who Jesus was, and certainly if we want to follow him, we can't just turn the other way. But what I hope we'll also see tonight is that Jesus' moral teaching was not just kind of random conservative moralising or something, but was a powerful, vital call to live with a real faith and openness to God. What I hope to show you was that the truly radical thing at the heart of Jesus' teaching was something unnervingly simple. Jesus actually believed in God. So come with me as we look at Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter 10. First, sex, or more specifically, divorce and marriage. Um, In verses 1 to 12, we see this interaction with him and the Pharisees, and this is a sensitive area, so uh, we actually need to take a little bit of time over it. Jesus is asked in verse 2, it would be a great week to have a Bible open actually, it would be really helpful. Jesus is asked in verse 2 of chapter 10 about whether it is lawful for a man to divorce his wife. Now in many ways this is actually an odd question uh, because as the passage makes clear, the law of Moses seems to have allowed divorce and in Jesus' day almost nobody disputed that. It was legal. So why are they asking this? Well the way the question's asked I think suggests that it was playing into a contemporary debate that was raging at the time amongst the Pharisees about how to interpret the law of Moses in Deuteronomy 24, uh, the passage they refer to in verse 4. And specifically, the debate was about what was needed in order for a divorce to be legitimate, whether you needed a really, really good reason or pretty much no reason. And there were two rabbis, one called Hillel, who said, if she burns the dinner, you can divorce her, and one called, literally, he said that, actually. And one called Shammai, uh, who said, you know, basically, she's got to commit adultery. Okay, and there's this debate about what is legitimate. And I think the best way to understand this question is that Jesus was being asked kind of about this issue. And he's being asked about whether any divorce is, in principle, okay. Or let me put it this way. Jesus is being asked not so much, is it ever lawful to get a divorce as in are there any circumstances where it's lawful or he's not being so much asked that so much as is getting a divorce essentially no problem right the main reason i think this is because in verses three and four when jesus asks the pharisees what they think the law says what they don't say is, well, Moses implies that the reason someone might get a divorce is if there's been adultery. These guys are not trying to take a really hardcore line on divorce. Actually, what they say is, well, Moses says, yeah, if you get a certificate, it's okay. Their interest seems to be in finding a way to say, yep, divorce is all good. And even if that's wrong, what they're doing is they're starting from this position where their interest is in working out, okay, so how do you get a divorce? Jesus' response is that that whole way of thinking, that whole debate has started on completely the wrong track, from completely the point. In fact, as soon as you're asking that question, he says, you've already 
completely devalued marriage. Deuteronomy 24, he says in verse 5, have a look at it there. He says, Deuteronomy 24 was only ever a concession to human sin, to a bad situation. It was only ever something given to limit damage. He says, it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses gave you this law. It wasn't because divorce was good and you can just, you know, if you just work out what the circumstances are, you can go for it. Because he says God's purpose, and this is what Jesus does, he says, you're interested in divorce, you don't even understand marriage. And he takes them to marriage. He says God's purpose for marriage was for it to be a permanent covenanted union between a man and a woman. Have a look there at verse 6. These are really foundational kind of words of Jesus. Jesus says, but at the beginning of creation, verse 6, God made them male and female. He's quoting from the book of Genesis. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So he says, they are no longer two, but one. And therefore he concludes, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, friends, these words have been foundational for Christian thinking about marriage ever since. They are in every wedding service we do. And they are also, just as an aside, as if this sermon could get a bit more controversial, they are kind of the basis of our churches and many Christians' opposition to same-sex marriage. For what Jesus tells us here is that marriage, you see, is not a human invention. It's not something cultural or social that we've come up with and can do what we like to. Nor is marriage something Christian. Right? Christians get married, but marriage is not something Christian. Marriage is something human, something that is there in the structure of created order that God has given to us. Something which is to be respected. Okay, now that's a bigger conversation. We're just going to flag that and come back to this issue. But that too, the reality of creation, says Jesus, is why the breaking up of a marriage is always a bad thing. And why the idea that divorce is not such a problem like Jesus' questioners seem to have been thinking, or like they might have been thinking, that is a wicked idea. Now, there are a range of ideas about divorce in our culture. Uh, One of the spectrum is the Hollywood view of divorce, or at least what seems to me like that from the cover of New Idea in the supermarket. The view that divorce is really nothing to worry about. You know, getting remarried is just like getting a new car. In my judgment, though, most people nowadays don't actually think like that. Most people I talk to, if you thought that way, why would you get married? You know, why bother? After all, it is bloody expensive. Most people I talk to, certainly the ones who are getting married and I talk to them, they would see divorce as something really tragic, something that is worth avoiding. And marriage is something worth holding on to, if you can, worth going to counselling for, that kind of thing. Most people I know who have gotten divorced, and I know several, even within my family, see it as a failure and a sad thing in their lives. They may not regret the decision, but they're sad that it happened. Thing is, though, this view can still be profoundly different from Jesus' view. 
Because for many people who hold this view, although divorce might be something tragic, if both parties involved, or even if just one of them, if they really want it, well then, it's probably the right thing to do. Do you know what I mean? If people have, for example, just grown apart so that they're now very unhappy together, even if they've been faithful to each other, it may be that the best thing to do is for them to get a divorce. Jesus' view is profoundly different from this. And it's different for this reason. According to Jesus, there are not two parties in a marriage. There are three. There is the man, there is the woman, and there is God who joins them together. And you cannot decide on the rights and wrongs of marriage and divorce without thinking about God without recognising that marriages are made by God and he wants them to last. Now taking this seriously is deeply challenging because it means taking seriously the idea that getting divorced and remarried can be evil. It can be, as Jesus says to his disciples in verses 11 and 12, look at it there, it can be an act of adultery. Why? Why? Why is that? Well, because the mere fact of a legal divorce does not eradicate, destroy the union made by God. A remarriage after a divorce, after a divorce can, in, in effect, be an act of adultery. Now, in what I've been saying, I may, if you've been listening carefully, I may have made it clear that I don't think these words in verses 11 apply to any and every divorce and remarriage in any and every circumstance. I think what Jesus was doing here was launching an attack on, on ways of thinking about divorce that forget God and devalue marriage. But I don't think actually at the end of the day these words apply to any and every divorce and remarriage. Now for some of you that will be confusing or controversial so let me explain where I'm coming from there. Basically, it's because I think Jesus and the Bible have other things to say about divorce and remarriage, including, I think, outlining some situations where they might be an inevitable and legitimate course of action. Um, most clearly, in Matthew's Gospel, in chapters 5 and chapter 19, if you want to look at it later, Jesus adds the words, except for sexual immorality, when he says everybody who divorces his wife and marries another. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul, it's verse 15, the Apostle Paul speaks about how if a spouse who is not a believer leaves the marriage, then the other partner, he says, is not bound, which in my judgment and the judgment of others means that they are in fact free to remarry. Um, so while I think, so the, the Bible, uh, let me put it this way, the Bible assumes that our responsibility, right, the first Christian responsibility is to pursue reconciliation. And that's really very clear. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11, Paul says to the Christian, don't separate. But if you do separate, remain unmarried or be reconciled. There's this assumption that, this, that our responsibility is to hold it together. And yet I think the Bible also recognises that marriages can in fact die. 
so that they can come to an end and that in certain terrible situations, divorce may be unavoidable and after which remarriage may be a legitimate course of action. Okay, if you would like to talk with me further about that, I'm really happy to. It's complex and this is a long passage and I can't talk about it all night. The fact remains though, coming back to where we are, that whatever we think about all of that, Jesus is radically rejecting a whole way of thinking about divorce which is very common to us. And he's probably saying some very confronting things about many actual divorces that we know of. When the disciples first heard these things, they were deeply shocked. Matthew's Gospel records them saying, we might as well not get married at all then. And Jesus responded by saying, yes, this is difficult teaching. But those who can accept it ought to do so. Um, But can we accept it? Can we live by this teaching? Is it actually practical in our world? I want to just raise that. It's actually not an easy question to answer and we'll come back to it right at the end. Uh, So hold on to that. But let me speak now, though, very briefly, to anybody here who may be actually now feeling a bit crushed and horrified by what they've heard Jesus say here. What I want to say now is simply this. The Christian faith has never been mainly about morals and rules and doing the right thing. These things are there, of course. They're an important part of the picture, but they're not, at the end of the day, the main game. Most importantly, none of us should forget that being a Christian is about being forgiven and about continuing to rely on God's grace every day. There is only one unforgivable sin. We read about it in Mark chapter 3, 4, 3. And it is not divorce or remarriage, nor adultery. And Jesus does not and will not give up, give up on us if we fail. Uh, it can be very hard to admit that in the past... A difficult decision we made was in fact the wrong decision. That we did after all fail. It can mean giving up on stories about ourselves that have held us together and been central to our identity. But with Jesus, it can actually be a path to the kingdom of God. Because as the next section, which we're going to go on to, makes really clear, the kingdom of God does not belong to those who don't make any mistakes. The kingdom of God belongs to those who have the humility to let go of their own self-justifications. Okay, so let me take you to the next section while we think about that. Issue two is power, verses 13 to 16. What happens here, this is a bit of a shorter, but it's a really important moment. What happens here is that this little moment of frustration from the disciples becomes, in Jesus' hands, a powerful parable of what the kingdom of God is about. Okay, imagine the disciples are getting frustrated because Jesus is getting swamped by people bringing their kids. I imagine it like a Santa queue, you know. Obviously, they didn't believe in Santa, but you get the picture. And they just, the disciples just react out of a normal way of looking at things. You know, you shouldn't bring your kids into the boardroom to race around the Tonka truck while we're trying to make an important meeting. Come on, people. I suspect they would have been deeply shocked by what happened. 
what happened is that Jesus is furious. He's indignant, morally outraged. See, Jesus sees something, something about what they've done is for Jesus almost goes to the heart of everything that's wrong with the world. And he says in verse 14 there, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of of God like a little child will never enter it. He says, you're looking down on them. You should want to be like them. Now, what is it about the children that Jesus is drawing attention to? What is it that makes them good candidates for the kingdom? Well, it's the fact that they don't know what's going on. It's the fact that they're not in control and they don't think they are. That they're not powerful or competent or impressive. That they don't have valuable opinions to offer and, and significant contributions to make. It's that they are and they have to be dependent, utterly at the mercy of Jesus. And that, says Jesus, that is how the kingdom is. The only way in is through being dependent, through not being in control and through not bringing a lot to the table. Why? Because it's the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of some humans. And God does not need our assistance. He wants us to be a part of it, but not on our terms, only as his gift. God's kingdom has no place for the arrogant, for those who think they'd make a pretty valuable contribution or who think they deserve to be there. This passage is perhaps the moment where it becomes most clear how totally Jesus challenges our pride. For what we're asked is this, what you're asked is this, are you willing, am I willing to be represented by children? Are you willing to have your life, your work, your contribution, your status, your value as a person summed up in this image, a snotty little child coming up to Jesus to be touched and blessed? Entirely dependent. Are you willing to let that be a picture of yourself? Nothing in my hand I bring Really? This interaction over the children can also help us understand the third issue, money. Because what we do is we immediately after that we get this great contrast with somebody who, although he's nervous, he thinks he's bringing a lot to the table. Let's have a look. This actual interaction with the rich man from verse uh, 17. There are three curious things about this interaction. I don't know if you followed it on the way through, if you picked up on them. Three curious things um, about this guy who comes and asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first curious thing is Jesus' initial response when he says in verse 18, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. Why does he say that? What prompts him to say that? Why does he need to do it? I mean, yeah, sure, it's a kind of weird theological point. What does it mean for him? But why does he say it then? Second curious thing is the commandments he lists. He only lists six of the ten. Surely if you're listing them, you list them all. 
but he leaves out the first four. Third curious thing is that when the man tells him in verse 20 that he's kept all these since his youth, by the way, I don't think this guy is just being arrogant. Right? Everything about him is earnest and genuine. He's not a hypocrite. Jesus loves him, which is not the kind of thing he tends to do with religious know-it-alls. But what Jesus says in verse 21 is really interesting. He says, one thing you lack. Now that's curious because, A, the guy's very rich, but B, what Jesus says is, one thing you lack, so give everything away. Why will giving everything away, be, how does that get him the one thing he lacks? Okay, so three curious things. I think the answer and the explanation to all of them is the same. What this man lacks is God. He has forgotten God. Which is why Jesus gives him a little reminder at the beginning. Remember, God is the one who's good. And it's why he deliberately leaves out all the commandments which are really about God. This man doesn't love God. No doubt, of course, this man wouldn't have agreed. He was devoutly religious. He He talked about God. He prayed to God all the time. Yet, did he really? Or did he just do it because that was what you did? Was God for him a real person with whom he had to engage and on whom he depended for everything, the great love of his heart? Or was God just a kind of factor in the equation of salvation? A machine that if you got the inputs right, the outputs would follow. What must I do, he asks. He's kind of just let God, as a real personal relationship being, just slide out of his thinking. What he lacks is the love for God that comes from depending on him. And that's why Jesus tells him to give his possessions away. Because he needs to need God. He needs to know that things are out of his hands. He needs to know that he is not the master of his fate. That if he is to inherit eternal life, it will not be because of things he does but because God takes him up in his arms like a pathetic little child and touches him with blessing. And that, I think, is why, as Jesus says, it is so hard for those who are rich to enter the kingdom of God. Because it is so easy for having stuff, for wealth and security to make you think you're okay on your own, that you can manage life. It's so easy for financial security to, to mean you, you just forget your real, utter neediness and dependence on God. And so our love for stuff, for goods, comes to take the place of our love for God, our only true good. And it becomes so hard to dislodge that we eventually don't really love God at all. The man goes away from Jesus grieving. It's the only time this happens in the gospel. He goes away grieving because he has great wealth. He loves his stuff. But you can't ultimately serve God and money, says Jesus. Now, I'm sure all of you here 
or most of you here, including myself actually, uh, you're kind of glad I've explained it this way. Because, of course, it means we don't all have to give away all our possessions. Isn't that good? Because, of course, the issue is not possessions. Aha, fantastic. It's our love. It's what we depend on. And so we all just need to make sure that we're depending on God, not on our stuff. Problem solved. Return the World Vision envelope to the recycling. The danger with this, though, is that we're all very good at fooling ourselves. You can imagine, can't you, if you'd asked this guy, hey, what do you love? What do you depend on? He would have said, God, of course. He wouldn't have said, my money, would he? But Jesus knew that wasn't true. He knew that it would take a lot to dislodge this, the hold that this guy's wealth had got on his heart. So where does that leave us then? Well, of course, this instruction to give away everything, it does not, in fact, apply to all of us. The rest of the Bible actually makes that perfectly clear. Although, by the way, all of us are actually commanded to give away some stuff. So let me ask you, are you giving away anything? Because the command of God is that you should. You should give money to the poor, to the ministry of the gospel, and to to good things. So if you're not doing it, you should do it. Your life may, in fact, depend on it. But the command is not for us to give away everything, necessarily. But let me ask you, though, what if it was? What if you knew, without any doubt, that Jesus' word to you was to give away all your possessions? Would you do it? Would you even bother thinking about it? Our answer to that question can tell us a lot, actually, about our heart. Not all of us need to give away all our possessions, but all of us do need the thing that this man needed and the thing that meant that he had to give away his possessions. We need God to have first place in our heart. For some of us, that may well actually mean giving up something important to us, whether it's a relationship or a dream or a job. For many of us, I suspect it means we ought to give away more of our stuff than we have before, for it is very hard for the rich, and let's be honest, in the world, that's all of us, probably. I don't know all of your situations. It's very hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, let's draw these threads together. Well, Jesus' teaching is very challenging, isn't it? The heart of the challenge, though, is not actually something very extreme at all. As we've seen, the thing at the heart of Jesus' teaching about sex, power and money is simply the reality of God. Jesus' moral teaching was essentially just a call to live with God at the centre as a real factor in our decision-making, as the one whose will is most important, who is the source of all our good, and so who deserves first place in our hearts. Jesus calls us to live as if we really believed in God. But as we've seen, this is actually not at all easy for us, is it? 
In fact, it is nothing short of radical. And it runs completely counter to the culture all around us, just as it did in Jesus' day. And so I wonder if you're at the end of this just feeling like it's all a bit too much. If you were, you wouldn't be the only one. Did you notice that in verse 26, the disciples ask in dismay, who then can be saved? Their question is prompted by the bit about wealth, but I think it's really a question that applies to the whole of Jesus' teaching. It's a response to his words in 24 where he says, not just that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, but it's just plain hard. It's a question that should encourage us in a nasty way, I think. That we are not alone in feeling intimidated by these demands. In fact, as Jesus goes on to say, what he's asking is in fact impossible, simply on our own. Look at verse 27, it's very important. Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. This is why you see nobody can enter the the kingdom of God except as a little child. Because it is beyond us. Because it is not something we are, even at our biggest and best and brightest, able to achieve on our own. But that doesn't mean, actually, that it is impossible. For here, as at every point along the way, Jesus' aim is that we remember God. With man, this is impossible but not with God. With God, all things are possible. See, God makes everything different. God means that even people like you and me can enter the kingdom. Now, we're almost at the end, but just finally, I know it's been a long talk, it's a long passage, but just finally, we need to notice this random little twist at the end. Um, The end of our passage, it does fit in And it actually helps us. Because if you think about it, if you're just left with that moment, it's impossible, but it's possible for God, where does that leave us? See, if it's impossible for human beings, well, what's the point of us even bothering to try? Doesn't that mean that none of our efforts are worth anything? I think that's what's driving Peter when he says in verse 28, see there, he says, we've left everything to follow you. You can hear, I think, the confusion and frustration in his voice at this point, can't you? He's saying, come on, Jesus, like, doesn't this count for something? What are you saying, Jesus? It's impossible. Why are we bothering? But what Peter doesn't realise, I think, is that he is an example of just how God makes impossible things possible. Because Jesus responds with this incredible assurance that their works of faith will not be forgotten. No one, he says, who has made sacrifices for his sake and for the gospel will fail to be wonderfully rewarded, both in this age and with life in eternity. The good works that we do out of faith in Jesus and in dependence on God will never be lost and will follow us into eternity. But that's not because we can, after all, save ourselves, but because God, through Jesus, has made it possible for us. Even our best works, with our biggest, best efforts, 
Even with them, we are never more than little children receiving the kingdom as a gift from our Father in heaven. Okay, finish. All of that may have suddenly become a bit obtuse and weird and I'd forgive you if you thought I'd kind of got carried away by theological ideas. So let me just finish with a simple exhortation that I hope brings everything together. Jesus taught that the right way to live was a life fully and completely centred on God. It's not, an all, it's not at all an easy way for us to live. In fact, it's, in a way, it's impossible. And perhaps tonight this has been scarily and painfully obvious to you as you've thought about your own or others' marriages, your own sense of pride, or your too strong and too powerful love for possessions and for other things in this life, things other than God. Yet Jesus also taught that, brothers and sisters, because of God there is hope Because with God, all things are possible. So that even people like us can enter the kingdom. And so our efforts to learn to live by a higher view of marriage, to humble ourselves and give up our pride, and to release our grip on the idols of our hearts for Jesus' sake, they will never be lost. They will follow us into eternity. We can't do it in our own strength, not at all. We are only ever children with nothing in our hands. But God is in the business of transforming and rescuing people who have come to see exactly that. So let me urge you tonight to put your trust in Jesus and to commit yourself to this difficult, in fact, this impossible way of life. To set out today to live as someone who really deeply believes in God. It could mean deeply difficult decisions for you. It could mean painful costs. It could seem beyond you. But you have Jesus' promise that with God all things are possible. And you have his promise that you will not lose your reward. And you know you can trust him because as the whole rest of our series in Mark will go on to show us, he gave his own life that this might be true. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for this opportunity. We've had to look at these, your teachings. For those of us who are still struggling to understand exactly what they mean, we ask for wisdom and we ask for your help. We ask for grace, Lord. We know we need it. And we ask for the clarity of vision to see that we are only ever children. And we pray that that knowledge that we are all dependent on you at every moment would fill our lives and the life of our church so that we would follow after you and learn what it is to make sacrifices for your sake. We pray this in your name. Amen.